0: You may be seated, I'll ask you to take your Bibles, turn to Galatians, which I am well aware is not Daniel, chapter 5, Galatians 5. It was a busy week, not a bad week, but a very busy week, Um, and I'm compelled this morning to warn of sin and the danger of sin, so right out of the gate, that's what this is about. Uh, I want to hear from Paul in Galatians chapter 5 and hopefully speak clearly uh, what the apostles' words say, we know they come from the Lord. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to begin reading just verses 16 through 18. Probably very familiar to some of us, perhaps not to others. Here is the Apostle Paul, Galatians five sixteen. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit... And the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. We'll pause there. I understand that we're picking up the passage in the middle of the chapter, and that we've not had the advantage of reading the first four and a half chapters. It would be to your advantage to read the first four and a half chapters, but I think we'll cover enough verses this morning that we'll get a good feel For the context, just in our time in God's Word. I see in these opening verses here a truth inescapable to the Christian's life. Um, A truth inescapable to my own life. There's no getting away from this for Reggie. I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. I have committed my life to serving Jesus. As all Christians, not just pastors, must do. Yet I echo the sentiment of the Apostle Paul, not only here, but in Romans 7, 23, when he says that he sees something else inside of him, something besides a love for Jesus, something insidious, something evil. I see, this is Paul in Romans 7, I see another law in my members, in my body, warring, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. Now, Paul is a Christian when he writes those words, and as a Christian, he observes in his heart an enemy, which is a strange thing to say, that there might be an enemy inside of us. You have probably heard someone say these words, I am my own worst enemy. Paul seems to agree with that. There is a war inside of him because... What he wants as a sinful man is in conflict with what his mind wants. He has made up his mind to follow Jesus. He has made up his mind to be committed to the Lord. But as a sinner, he is drawn to selfishness and to sin. In Romans 7, Paul says that his sinful heart would like to bring him into captivity There is inside of me, inside of my members, a law warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. And if he just does what he wants as a sinful man, he would gradually become a slave. That's what captivity is, a slave. He says that as a Christian. In verses 24 and 25 of that chapter, Romans 7, he cries out to God, thanking him that Jesus continually sets him free. Now, that is what we observe in these same verses in Galatians. There's a conflict inside the life of a Christian person. The Spirit, as it says here, which is the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of Reggie, the Spirit of God, is in conflict with the flesh, which is who we are naturally apart from God. The Spirit of God is working to transform our lives, It does this by shaping our thinking according to the Word of God. This, what we're doing here this morning, may not be very entertaining to you. It may not be very captivating. It may not be uh, uh, very compelling in terms of just a natural man. But we are giving ourselves to something important and necessary. God's Spirit, through the washing of the Word, transforms the way that we think. Transforms our minds. It is not magical. It doesn't happen instantaneous. You don't say, I want to follow God. I want to trust the Lord. And now magically, I no longer have desires or see the world that I saw it before. This is a process of transformation that God's Spirit is about. The flesh, as it's spoken of here, is who we are naturally as sinners. And the flesh is not interested in the things of God. We are naturally inclined to. To pursue our own interests and our own desires, not God's. So, Paul writes, there is a conflict. In Romans 7, he calls it a war. Here he says one is contrary to the other. Verse 17 tells us why. So that you do not do the things that you wish. There is a battle going on in the Christian's life, and the conflict is concerning how a Christian will live, what a Christian will do. Standing in line two days ago at a ride at an amusement park, I was tired and wearing down much faster than I am used to wearing down, and I see a t-shirt that I have seen 10,000 times before. You have seen it thousands of times yourself, I am sure of it. Nike, just do it just do it. That's a perfectly good phrase for a coach to employ when he's trying to get someone who is ready to quit to do something that he or she knows would be good for him to keep doing. Just just do it. And so I have, I have no condemnation for the phrase itself. I remember I was coaching junior high track. I had a certain young man who did not believe he could complete the one warm-up lap that I asked him to run at the start of each practice week by week, day by day, this was a miniature war. You can do this one lap. You can do this one lap. And I often employed the phrase, look, man, just do it. Just go do it. Just do it. And uh, he did. He did. So I understand the value of doing hard things, but there is no value in just doing whatever we want to do. It happens to be The worst advice that the world can give us when we are told, just do whatever makes you happy, just do whatever feels right, just do what you want to do. For our God has spoken clearly in Jeremiah 17 when he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. My heart and my desires, your heart, your desires, Cannot be trusted. They promise that if we pursue what we want, we will experience joy and pleasure and peace and prosperity. That's why we want these things. But if we pursue them, we will find that our heart is lying to us and that there is emptiness, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. That there is no satisfaction in selfish fulfillment. That that is not what we were created to do. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Which is very much what we see of Jesus in John 2.25. If God says that in the Old Testament through the prophet Jeremiah. John 2.25 tells us that the Lord Jesus himself would not commit himself to the people who wanted to make him a king in the early part of his earthly ministry because, and this is the verse, he knew what was in a man. He knew what was in a man. Here were all these people ready to make him king. This is our conviction. We will follow you. But he knew what was in the heart of a man. And so he went to a cross that we might not be led by what's in our hearts, but that we might be led by the Spirit of God in fellowship with him. Now, Paul knows that there may be some confusion about the work of the flesh, as he calls it here in Galatians 5, so then he gives us verses 19 through 21. We'll read them just briefly. They're worth a study. I'll make a comment or two as we go, but very briefly, let's read verse 19, Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, Those are sexual sins. Idolatry, sorcery. Those are sins of worship. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. Those are relationship sins. Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy. These are sins of pride. Murders, drunkenness revelries, these are sins of public shame, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice, he says that the works of the flesh are evident. They are not hard to identify with the Spirit of God. They are sexual, spiritual, relational, prideful, and shameful. They are much more than just what we find in this listing. That's why it says in verse 21, and the like. There are many other works of the flesh like the ones Paul lists here. And then he warns Christian people. And I don't know about you reading those verses, but to me, he sounds very much like a good dad here. Uh, A good dad says, look, I told you this before, and I'm telling you this again that's good parenting. When something is true, when something is right, that something should be repeated because what is true and what is right will always help. Paul says now, here is something that is truly true. Here is something that is truly right. People who make an unrepentant practice of evil will not be in God's kingdom. This is a most severe warning. Paul does not say that Bob over there, sitting in the third row of the Galatian church, is going to hell. He doesn't do that. He doesn't point to a person and say, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. Paul doesn't know if Bob is going to hell. Paul is not God. He does not know Bob's heart. But Paul knows God. And he knows that when God begins a life-giving relationship with someone, That person's life actually begins to change. They become broken over their sin. They become repentant. In other words, repentance is the idea of turning away from something. When they sin, they know this is something I should not do. This is something I should seek reconciliation with God for. This is something I should fight. This is something I should battle. This is not the sort of thing, as the verse says, I should make a practice of. Romans 1 speaks to people like this, who not only do things that they know are wrong, but give hearty approval to them as if what they were doing wrong was not wrong. So we have context to understand this. This is people who who do not acknowledge their sin. People who instead pretend that their sin is not sin. They have no need to repent of it. They demonstrate that they do not have fellowship with God. This is Paul's warning. He seems very concerned that people may not believe him, that people will be deceived. Um, He seems very concerned that they'll not pay attention to this in their lives, that they'll think, well, I know Jesus. I was baptized. I became a Christian. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And he seems concerned for them here. I think it's a concern born out of love, and I, I think it's echoed by John in 1 John 2.1. Here is John in 1 John chapter 2, dealing with the exact same thing, with the same concern. He says this, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. He goes on in verse 4 of that chapter, and this is what he says. You can be challenged by this or ignore it. John is concerned that you hear it. He who says, I know Jesus, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who abides in him, in Jesus, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. That is what Paul is saying. They are writing these things to us. John, the Apostle Paul, that we may not sin, that we may instead abide in fellowship with Jesus through the Spirit of God and live our lives as Jesus lived. Now, in contrast to our selfish desires that come so naturally, Paul presents a list of attributes that God produces in the Christian that do not comes so naturally. And this is Galatians 5, verses 22 and following. So if you're still in Galatians, look at verse 22. Here, are, here is what God produces, and this does not come naturally to us. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Can you hear a hint of what I read from 1 John there? That we should walk as Jesus walks? Paul is making the same plea. If you say, I live in the Spirit, which is to say, I live in good, reconciled fellowship with God, then we should live. As if we have good, reconciled fellowship with God. Because the person who has fellowship with God has put to death, has crucified the things of the flesh. When a person becomes a Christian, they are saying, I'm renouncing all of these selfish passions and desires that I've spent my life in pursuit of. I want to pursue a relationship with God. And whatever he wants me to do, whatever he wants me to become, that's okay with me. I'm not going to worry about, well, will I be happy if I follow God in three years? Or, well, will I enjoy Saturday evening? Or, will I enjoy to, or will I find the right person? No, 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 no. Look, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to live by faith. And I'm going to renounce these other ambitions. And whatever God does with my life is okay with me. It would be well worth our time to think about each one of those what they're called fruit of the Spirit, carefully, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That's why I come back to this list so frequently. I routinely make mention of these attributes when I'm teaching on Sunday morning. Some of you probably have them memorized without ever trying to memorize them because of how frequently we return to them. That is the work of my mother in my life. She taught me the fruit of the Spirit uh, as she taught me so many things by song, by children's song, I'm not going to sing it for you, but I know it. And then she would, my mom would gently challenge me with these words. And that could be, I don't know if you've ever been uh, in a position of being a Christian and being challenged by the counsel of another Christian when it comes to something that you're struggling with. But it can be infuriating. And I don't blame you for that. It can be very frustrating to be challenged to do the right thing. Um, I understand that. My mom would challenge me, and she would say things softly sometimes, Less softly, other times, but she would plead with me and she would ask the question Reggie, is that love? I understand how you feel. I understand how you think about this. I get it. But is that love? Um, What you've just said or done to your little brother is that love? Is that kindness? Is that self control? And on and on and on. And it could be an infuriating thing to be reminded of that because when you're worked up about something, you don't want to come to terms with whether or not it's truly from God. When a Christian person is wrong about something, whether in deed or relationship, to be reminded of this simple passage is a difficult slice of pie to eat. How many times in my life have I been so sure that I was right about something, only to be hit with a bucket of ice-cold water called the fruit of the Spirit and discover just how wrong I can be about something that I was right about. Even words of truth that come from evil, unkind, unloving, unhappy, ungentle, bitter spirits will not be to God's glory. And you see in verse 24, Paul is reminding again that we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Remember, Reggie, my mom would say, you are a Christian. You have to follow Jesus. You have to do what the Lord wants here. You have to turn away from this. You have to love like Jesus loved. I think that's what he means, what John means. If we say we abide in Christ, then we have to live as he lived. If we say we have fellowship with God's Spirit, then we have to live as the Spirit of God leads. Which brings us to the next verse. My mother helping me with this. Verses 26 through verse 5 of chapter 6. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I'll add here, isn't that what Jesus did? Did not Jesus bear our burden? Did He not bear the difficulty of our sin? That's what Paul means. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is a plea for people to help each other with sin. Verse 3, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's not, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work. And then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. His rejoicing won't be, hey, I'm better than that guy. Hey, I'm better than that guy. Hey, I'm better than that guy. Examine yourself. And then you will have rejoicing in, yourself, in what God is doing in your life, not in comparison to somebody else. Verse 5, for each one shall bear his own load. Paul says we should help each other not in a competitive way, not in a conceited way, that we should help, he says, in a spirit of gentleness. Because dealing with sin is the sort of work done with a precision tool. I'll say that again. Dealing with sin in our attempt to help someone is the sort of work done with precision, with a surgeon's tool, not a hammer. The hammer is employed ably for the appropriate jobs, but the job of helping another person with sin is a delicate delicate thing. Just as we would not bash our way through the sternum of somebody to perform surgery, we have to be careful when we speak to the heart of the believer and what's going on there. We must be gentle. We must be kind. We must be careful. Notice that Paul says that as we're doing this, we should be careful of temptation even as we're trying to help, because evil is far more dangerous than we think that it is. I would give you a passage, just two verses from 1 Corinthians 10 to consider here about the danger of evil. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I think that pretty much says it all in a nutshell. Let the person who thinks that he stands, I'm doing great, I'm just fine, I'm okay, be careful, take heed, lest he fall. Then he says, no temptation has overtaken you except the kind of temptation that's common to man. But God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with every temptation will make a way of escape so that you can bear it that you can get through this temptation, you can get through this difficulty. That's the level of concern the Apostle Paul had with temptation. The person who says, no, I'm good, I would never do that, is asking for trouble. Asking for trouble. I hear this a lot from young people. I wish only young people, but a lot from young people. I hear it from my own children. Dad, I would never do that. And my alarm bells go off in my head. When one of my children assures me, I would never do that. Alarm bells. I hear it from your children. I would never do that, Pastor. I would never do that. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Here in Galatians 6 3, Paul says, If anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he is deceiving himself. I know what I am, Um, I am a sinner. I am saved by God's grace. With my mind, I would serve God and I would not fail in that service. But I find inside myself passions and interests and natural desires and feelings that would deceive me and enslave me and capture my life. And I am tempted to pursue these things. So I have to take heed. I have to be careful. I must not be conceited and deceived into thinking that I have somehow risen to some place of immunity to anything. Even in helping others, even when I would wish to help, I have to be careful. And now Paul's final warning in the text is the last passage we'll read. Galatians 6, verses 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. You see where his concern is. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows. Just to be clear, we're talking about planting like a farmer would plant seeds in the ground. That's sowing. Whatever a man sows that he will also reap. I have a a garden. Um, I plant stuff in the garden, whatever I plant in the ground, that's the kind of thing that's going to grow. Um, That's simple. That's what Paul is saying. Whatever a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. God is not mocked. If I say, I'm a servant of God, I'm, I'm doing what God wants, while in truth I'm living my life sowing seeds of unrighteousness and selfishness, God is not going to be made a fool of. Those seeds are going to grow. They will come to a harvest, and when they do, it will be clear what was actually going on. That is Paul's level of concern. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for a man, whatever a man sows, that he will reap. Now he gives the spiritual explanation of what he says, for he who sows to his flesh and when we say that, we're not talking about blood and skin and bones. We're talking about the natural man, the sinful man, who we are by default, who we are in all of our natural inclinations. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit To the things of God will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. It's a good verse in case you're tired of just faithfully doing the right things. It's a good verse for those who get tired, for those who grow weary of doing the right things and trying to serve God faithfully and things do not seem to go great. This is a good verse for you. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith. And let that last part sink in. This is not a passage to condemn unbelievers and make believers feel very good about themselves. It is a passage written to Christian people. It is written to have Christians consider their lives to see whether or not they are spending themselves on the desires of the natural man or whether they are spending themselves on what the Spirit of God is calling them to. Now, what's the workaround for this? Well, here's the workaround. This is what I encounter. This is what I encounter in my own heart. Well, I know that um, if I sow of the flesh, I will reap of the flesh. If I sow of the Spirit, I will reap of the Spirit. I, I get that part. And so I imagine now before me two fields. And in the one field, I will spend my time doing things that I know are not necessarily in God's will, and they will grow in this field over here. But I'll also spend a considerable amount of time doing things for the Lord, and they will grow in this field over here, so that I will experience both the desires of my heart and the world around me, and also the blessings of God as they grow and I see a harvest there. That's what we imagine. Uh, I, will, I will sow here my ambitions and my desires and my passions, and over here I'll try to do faithful things for God too, and there will be some sort of balancing out in my life. The black and the white, the, the, the great Taoism of all this. You know, there will be some sort of, of coalescing of this together, and I'll get some sense of the best of both worlds. That's not what this says. The problem, the error there is that you only have one field. That's the problem. You don't have two fields, not for this metaphor. You have one life, you have one soul, you have one fellowship with God. You are not inside some some dual person, two people in one. You're just one person. And when it says, if you sow of the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. The word corruption is the word for degradation or degrading. It means a gradual drifting away from what was good. Now, if you sow of the flesh and of the spirit in the same field, if, you, if, that's, the, if that's how you're approaching your life, there will be a corrupting effect. This is why we have the warning that we have. And it, it Paul makes it akin in verse 8 to how we think about eternal life. It says, he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. I think this is a parallel, at least an idea, to what Jesus said during his ministry. Now, Jesus says there are two paths. There's a broad path that most of the people in the world are on and then there's a very narrow path that leads to life and few who find it. There's a broad path that leads to destruction and you say, well, that's what I'm saying. Two fields, two ways of doing it, right? The problem is you can only be on one of those. You can't be on both. You can't be on both paths. There are two ways to live but Jesus says you can't do them both. You can be on one or the other. But we we sometimes sit on a fence as if we're splitting the difference or as if we're traveling back and forth through shortcuts between both ways. And Jesus says no. There's another, the other analogy, and I know we have referenced this one plenty of times, is that there are two types of houses, one built on sand and one built on the rock. There are two types, but you can only build one because the house is akin to your life. You can't live the two lives simultaneously. You can only build one. And in that parable, Jesus says that the one who builds his house on a rock is everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Faithfulness, obedience, not mere profession, faithfulness, faithfulness. Where is all this coming from? Um... I'll be I'll be careful because I don't want to overshare, but I spent a fair amount of time at the end of this week, while preparing to to preach through Daniel chapter eight, being confronted with the with the with the deceptive nature of sin. Um, and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Um, and and as I was going through this, you know I. I, I I, I sit down and i would and I would listen and uh, try to encourage and try to be gentle, but at some point if if you if you come face to face with what sin is and what sin will do at some point you just you can't be a human being unless you find it overwhelming, not when you truly see it to its conclusion and that's that's what i don't that doesn't happen every week every, I don't sit down every week with someone who has dealt with sin to the very end and is now struggling with that. But this week I did, and it's heartbreaking. And um, I know that there, are, there are, are two kinds of people here this morning, just like there are two paths and there are two kinds of houses that, that you can build with your life. And I, I'm, and I want to say something to each. To, to the person here who is a Christian who has trusted Jesus with their life, who's committed their life to Jesus, I want to warn you, as I think Paul does and John does, and I think the Lord Jesus does, do not take your own selfish, sinful, natural man desires lightly. Don't take them lightly. They can do far more damage and destruction than than you would imagine that they can do, not merely to you, but to all people around you, do not take sin lightly. I'll, I'll tell you this. Is, sin cannot be controlled. It is in itself a controlling thing. It enslaves people. It enslaves people who would never volunteer to be in its service. It changes the way that they think. It changes the mind. It changes the way they see the world. It changes the way they see relationships. It consumes It corrupts, and you cannot keep it in a box. If you begin to pursue the flesh, not taking heed of these things, you will experience a corruption that you did not set out to experience. You will become bitter and jaded. You will become disconnected and withdrawn. Sin, as long as it continues to grow and corrupt in your life, will hurt you. And it will not only hurt you, it will seek to destroy those around you. It is insidious. So to the Christian person who is here today, take this seriously. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Acknowledge who you are. That's what I'm not talking about myself as a sinner because I'm trying to make a sermon about me. I'm trying to be an example. I know I am a sinner. I know that I am confronted by my sin. Some of you have confronted me about my sin. I know that. You know that. I am no perfect man. I have to take my sin seriously. You have to take your sin seriously. Humble yourself before the Lord. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your evil. Acknowledge your ambition. Acknowledge the pride and the bitterness and the selfishness. Don't live in it. If you live in it, you will reap the corruption that comes from it. And it will do more than you think it will do. Whatever your estimation of what this will do in your life, it will be far worse. It will be far worse to you, and it will be far worse to those who you love. That's not... I don't believe... You look at the scriptures, you consider it for yourself. I don't think that's just me. I don't think that's my message. I believe, with all my heart, that is what this is saying. You have to make that determination. The authority doesn't lie in me. It lies in God's word. You don't have to believe me. I'm asking you to consider this. Is this what God is saying? I believe it is. You be the judge, Christian. You have the spirit of God. But if it is, do not resist God. Humble yourself. Don't be prideful. Humble yourself. Do the right thing. It will be worth it. It will spare you. It will spare you and those who love you from tremendous pain. That's to the first group of people. But there's a second group of people. And I'm telling you, this group of people have not trusted Jesus. They are not committed to following Jesus. And when they hear... The list of sin that those who practice these things unrepentantly will not inherit the kingdom of God, that is very alarming to them because they know which camp they're in. I don't know which camp you're in. I don't have like 10 people in mind. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to preach the passage. If that's you and you know you're not reconciled to God, you don't have peace with God then I'm pleading with you. And that's a good thing to do. That's what I read in the call to worship. Paul is pleading with these people. As though God, this is what it says, as though God were pleading with them through Paul. You don't have to like me. You don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to have a great respect for me to listen to this. I am pleading with you on behalf of God to be reconciled to Him. I am pleading with you to see in the person of Jesus God's love for you, and that the one who did not sin suffered a sinner's death so that God could judge sin at the cross instead of judge sin when you stand before Him and give an account for your life. You do not have to do anything to be saved. You do not have to make yourself anything to be saved. God will accomplish that once you have fellowship with Him, once you have the Spirit of God. You can't do it apart from the Spirit of God. You're just a man. You're just a woman. You can't do that apart from the Spirit of God. It was the council. I tried to explain this this weekend because so oftentimes what I find when someone is resisting, what they genuinely feel is a call to salvation. The, the difficulty is, when I make a profession of faith, what will happen that will bring about all this change? You know, does that mean magically I'm not going to want to do bad things anymore? And that's what, that's what many people want. If I say that I trust Jesus, does that mean that all of, you know, it, what's going to happen? And they're looking for something mystical. They're looking for something magical. They're looking for something immediate. What does God's word say? The Bible says that Christian people are transformed by the renewing of their minds and thinking as the Spirit of God works through the Word of God gradually in our lives. So if you are here today and you've not trusted Jesus and you have found the Christian message very empty and powerless, maybe you have identified as a Christian for a long time and you still find the Christian message empty and powerless, this may be your problem. Our faith is not a faith that says go transform your life into something that it's not. Our faith says... Have peace with God. He will have fellowship with you. And over time, he will make you, he will fashion you, he will mold you into what he has called you to be. Your thing to do is to trust him with that. By faith, to trust him with that. To put one foot in front of the other every day. What do you want me to do? I failed today. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I repent. I failed. I failed. Keep working on me, God. God will do the work. But you have to have the faith to follow him. Just like Matthew, the tax collector, had to get up and follow Jesus. Just like Peter, James, and John, the fisherman, had to leave the security of the family business and go follow Jesus. Just like Zacchaeus had to get out of his tree and had to acknowledge his wrongdoing and follow Jesus. That's what's required of you. And if that's not you today, I will echo what I read In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 at the beginning of the service. Today is an acceptable day for God. Is it an acceptable day for you? Is today a good day to have peace with God? God says today is a good day for me. That's not my boy. I'm not saying anything on his behalf. That is what he says. Today is the day of salvation. Today is good for me. Do you want to have peace with God? How about right now? How about today? Is that not the voice of a father <laughs> who has children estranged? Is that not the face of a father who longs for a relationship? Look, today is good for me. We don't need to wait until Thanksgiving or Christmas or your birthday or next year till one of us is on a deathbed. Today sounds like a good day to me. God loves you. He has dealt with your sin for you. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I know that I am not some some great pinnacle of of spiritual insight. I, I've done my best to preach Your Word, and now I lay the work of that at Your feet. Uh, you are going to do something in people's lives, or you won't. But it it won't be because of me. Uh, and Father. Uh, I ask that your people would join with me now in in prayer, not just bowing their heads and waiting out the clock, but would actually pray for their brothers and sisters around them, uh, that we will be faithful to you, that we will be people who help gently in sin, that we will be people who resist the flesh, who are serious about the danger of temptation and sin, that we will be people who are pleading with others to be reconciled to you, But Father, foremost this morning, I pray for those who do not have a relationship with you today. Who, if they die today, will not be in your kingdom, which we call heaven. Father, help them to to experience what you've said in your word. Today is a good day to be saved. Uh, overwhelm them with your love and with your power. Help them to see in you someone trustworthy who can be trusted with their lives and help your people to be faithful in pleading with them to be saved. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.